Hey, welcome back. This is Dan Blewett, and we're here for episode four of Dear Baseball Gods. The topic I want to talk about today is is kind of growing up in your sport and how you can become a leader over time. So when I uh, when I signed on to attend college at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, you know, I did so without a scholarship. You know, I just really wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was. And I came in with a roster of, I don't know, 12 pitchers where I was, you know, one of the last guys on the on the list, whether it was 9, 10, 11, or 12, didn't make much difference, but I was pretty much at the bottom. And I later learned from teammates that, you know, the uh, the Justin Bieber lookalike that, that I kind of was, uh, I was about as, as scrawny as he was too, um, they thought I was going to get cut. You know, when we, uh, I knew that I was a recruited walk-on where, you know, my coach he came and saw me play and he said you know I've got a spot for you and I don't know maybe I was naive maybe I I I could have been cut that fall I'm not really sure but I kind of took it as I I had a spot on the team and when I went there I just kind of assumed that I was gonna be with that school for the next four years that turned that did turn out to be the case but um, obviously some of these older guys the upperclassmen they'd probably seen kids like me come and go and, and get cut after a fall so that fall, I was just kind of running around like a little baby deer, just trying to make my way through and act like I fit in and, you know, do the drills right. But really, I and I tell people to this day that I only look athletic, that I'm not actually athletic. And for anyone listening who actually knows me, they know this is true. Um, I try to stay off the basketball court at, at all costs. I don't participate in pickup football games or um, pretty much anything. You know, I'll, I'll play ping pong and not embarrass myself. Um, I can write a little bit, but basically I'm, I'm, uh, I'm about as athletic as a chess player. So throughout my freshman year, you know, I was just trying to become like some kind of baseline division one athlete. Cause really I just wasn't, I wasn't as athletic as the other guys. I wasn't as strong. I wasn't as fast. I didn't throw as hard. You know, I threw around 80. That was my kind of my average, like 71 to 80, 80 or 78 to 81. You know, I touched an 82 or 83 once in a while, but you know, I, I was in no way really a division one athlete. So, you know, I felt a certain way watching the upperclassmen, you know, watching the guys I looked up to as a freshman, we had a, a pretty, I think, robust group of older guys who really knew the game and they were, they were kind of big and strong and, and they had, you know, a more vocal presence. Um, as the years went on, that really wasn't the case. But when I was a freshman, especially we had, a like I said, we had a crop of, of leaders, I guess, who were, you know, by all accounts, um, what they said they were, what they acted like they were. They they performed well in the field. You know, they controlled our group. Um, they got guys into line. You know, they, they did leader things, right? So as I got older, you know, I started to earn my keep as a player. I put on 20 pounds that freshman year. Um, I added six, seven miles per hour to my fastball that, that year. I was touching 87 by the end of my freshman season. Um, so I fit in as a sophomore, right? But even as I got older and I got bigger and I got stronger and I looked the part and I was no longer conspicuous, you know, in a group doing agility drills, whereas, you know, usually I'd be falling over myself and tripping over the cones and whatever. Um, But, you know, as I got older, I I expected that, you know, with those gains in strength and with those gains in size and with more comfort in doing athletic things and in front of people that are more athletic than me that, I would uh I would start to feel like those upperclassmen that I would start to you know possess a leadership role on the team that others would start to to look to me to to lead or at least just to be a part of the the upper pack um 
but I never really felt that way. Um, you know, and, and throughout my career, I started being, you find yourself at junctions where your leadership and your values and the things you stand for as a player become tested, right? So the first one of which I think was my, I guess it was my junior year. Um, so that'd be my third year, not my, so I redshirted a year. So my, my years are kind of foggy. It was freshman, sophomore, redshirt, sophomore, redshirt, junior, and then I guess technically like super senior because, uh, my, my third year, my redshirt sophomore year, God, it's confusing. I, uh, you know, I had a partial elbow tear. I got a, I got a medical red shirt. So I believe in my third year, uh, in the summer playing summer baseball and we had a pretty good team. Um, we were in a, what's called what was called the Cowropkin senior collegiate league, which was centered around Washington, DC. So I played for the silver spring team, which silver spring, Maryland is a, is a nice suburb of, of Washington, DC and playing for the silver spring Tacoma Thunderbolts. Um, we had a coach who would later become a major player in my life. Uh, his name is John Duffy. He, he coached me the next two years for the T-Bolts. He helped me get into independent baseball. He's still a good friend. Um, he's kind of been a mentor the whole way. But so he was one of the. He was a pretty outspoken coach, and he was a you know doesn't take crap from anyone kind of guy. He's still he's still like that. He's kind of a bulldog. But um, so. One of the later games in that summer, we had a pretty good team. We gelled pretty well, and, you know, we won some games. I think we were in third place most of the summer in a pretty competitive competitive league at the time. And uh, our closer was taking pulls off of a flask during one of our games, right? He was drinking, not like he was hammered drunk, but really I don't know how, how much he was he was drinking. But everyone became aware um, that our closer was drinking. And so that night he went out and he did get a save situation and he blew it. And I, I don't mean to take my name in vain, but, um, he had a terrible outing, you know, threw like crap and we lost the game. And even before he went out there on the mound, even if he had thrown great, um, a lot of us guys who worked hard and we thought we did things the right way, were pretty pissed off about it and we didn't know how to handle it. And, you know, a, a little while later, maybe a couple of weeks went by and, uh, we were, I don't know, we were some kind of team function, and me and my friend at the time, Andrew, um, we went to Duff and we were, we were just kind of talking just off the cuff about a lot of different stuff. And we kind of mentioned that because the season was winding down. Well, it wasn't like we were trying to get the kid in trouble, but we were just like, yeah, you know, he uh, he was drinking during the games and he kind of did that a couple more times. And, you know, we were always pretty pissed off about it, but we didn't know if we were supposed to come to you about it or or what. We didn't want to be, you know, rat him out. And he's like, dude, no that's not my, that's not my problem. That's your guy's problem. Like this is your team. You know, if you guys consider yourself leaders, if you guys consider yourself, you know, athletes who do things the right way, you can't let that talk. You can't let that stuff fly. You can't tolerate that. That's not something you go talk to daddy about. That's not something you go take to the coaches. That's something that you guys, you as a team, you handle that amongst yourselves. Some things are coaching issues. You know, some matters you take to your coaching staff to the front office, whatever, other things the players have to handle, right? The coaching, the coaching staff cannot approach all the disciplinary matters. They can't keep everyone aligned. You know, it's like I said, it's not, it's not mommy and daddy um, holding the hands of the whole team. You guys got to police yourselves, and you got to pick and choose those battles. And that takes some experience, but that one's on you. That's not on me. That's on you guys. You you kept silent. It wasn't. Even if you you know you brought up that game, it wasn't your place to come tell me. It was your com- it was your place to get in his face 
and tell him that that was unacceptable because you guys wanted to win games. He was a part of that, and he cost you that game. So that was probably my first experience where I think I let I let myself down. I let others down. And it's one of those hard things where until you do it, you you don't know how to approach people with, with negativity. With And it's not such a negativity. That's not probably the right word to use, but to tell people that they don't what they don't want to hear, right? It's hard to critique other people when you're afraid it might hurt their feelings or it might make them mad or it might result in a fight. Um, I know couples go through that all the time. Like, you know, people stay silent in their relationships because, you know, they're afraid to bring something that's awkward or uncomfortable or, you know, could cause a fight up to their spouse or loved one or whoever, right? It's not easy. It's, it never gets easy. But um, when you have values and when you care about what you're doing or whatever the outcome is of your projects or your whatever it is, you can't stay silent about those things. And then sooner or later, you have to start taking a stand. So at that time in summer ball, you know, that was like a red flag to me. And I I never forgot that. Obviously, I'm recounting the story for you now. But, you know, that was the first incidence where I learned there were things beyond, you know, coaching, that there were things that guys on the team had to take care of, that if you want to be a leader, you you need to be the guy that stands up and leads the charge against that, right? So, couple years later, you know, I was in my, one of my uh, professor's office, you know, he was holding hours and I wasn't very close to many of my, my professors in school. I was pretty quiet in class, um, mostly because I was a philosophy major and I never felt like I knew the right answer. Um, I, I turned in all my papers and never had any idea what later letter grade I was going to get. Philosophy is a weird major where it's mostly um, take home, not take home tests, but, you know, midterm, final, couple papers, it's all papers. So your entire grade for that semester is based on either two papers or four papers or six papers, something like that. And they're always just super abstract. And basically the whole major is just about teaching you how to think, which philosophy major, without getting too deep into it, is extremely underrated for that quality. Um, and I tell people now, I didn't get like a certification in college. I got an education because I learned how to think. I learned how to be critical. I learned how to be deductive. It's helped my writing. It's helped our business planning. Um, you know, being a critical thinker and a problem solver, it has huge implications for your entire life. And I didn't know it at the time, but as each year goes by, I'm more and more happy that um, I have a philosophy degree. But anyway, I didn't have a strong connection with most of my with most of my professors and there was one his name is Roy Templeton and he was really <laughs> of all the people that I bond with you'd think he'd be the last one because he had this sort of stage persona when he would lecture that was just extremely um I don't know what the word is but he was scary <laughs> that's the word he was scary um but outside of class he was this really easygoing affable like likable guy but he had this just like an athlete would like you know, there's guys who are mean on the court. They're mean on the field. Uh, but when you get them after the game, they're just super loose and outgoing and easygoing. And you'd never know that they're that same, you know, bulldog on the field. And he was kind of the same way. So he had these lectures that he'd been giving clearly for years that, you know, he'd, he'd come up to the lectern and he'd give his speech and it would be very formulaic. And um, like I said, he was just kind of a pro. But he was intimidating. If you came into class late, the look that he would give you was just like, good God, you just melt into your seat and just sit there terrified and, and just nod and hope <laughs> hope you wouldn't look your way again. But um, Roy and I bonded over religion because over in college, 
Um, my, my sophomore year, I started to question my religious beliefs. I, was, I grew up Christian, and he was pretty outspoken about, about atheism and his atheist beliefs, and just he would lecture about um, the fallacy of belief and all these different things. And again, I'm not going to get into religion today, but he and I kind of bonded over that because he was a mentor to me um, in my sort of religious journey in college. But so anyway, you know, I, we would talk about sports. He also lectured a lot about, um, I took a couple of his classes on the Asian martial arts and Eastern philosophy and uh, the philosophy of sports and all that sort of stuff. So I, there was a lot of stuff that I got a lot of out of in his class. I read a lot of those, um, you know, Eastern philosophy texts and books, uh, you know, um, the art of war, the Hagakore, the unfettered mind, all those really great books that were written for, you know, basically their samurai code. Um, so we would talk a couple times a year, you know, I'd meet him in his office and we'd talk sports or we'd talk philosophy or ask him religious questions or whatever it was. And, you know, he always asked about me and he'd ask how I was doing and, you know, I was a baseball player and I think I was one of the only athletes who, um, majored in philosophy. So, you know, he got to talk a little bit more about me about the athletic side than, than most, but so I remember my fourth year, I had to come up and kind of break the news to him that, you know, we'd had conversations earlier in the year that I was excited that I was maybe going to get drafted, that the Rockies had shown a lot of interest in me. They'd sent one of their higher ups to have an interview with me. And I mean, that all that stuff was new to me and it was just super exciting thinking that I was going to be what I'd always hoped I'd be, you know, a, a pro pitcher. And once I found out after my redshirt junior year, my fourth year, that I needed Tommy John, you know, I kind of went back and I updated him. And I was really disappointed, obviously. And, you know, we, we kind of talked about what had transpired in my future and all this stuff. And somewhere along that conversation, I it came out that I just, as a senior, and I knew at that point, like I was a, I was a physical animal. I ate super healthy. I was, I just crushed it in the gym. You know, I would be one of the leaders in our suicides and our, in our gassers and our running our conditioning stuff, like everything physical. I was at the top of our class because I wanted to be, you know, because I put in the work and we had other hardworking guys on our team and I wanted to, to beat them. I wanted to be number one with things I could control. Um, and so I knew like all the guys that I looked up to who were seniors when I was a freshman, you know, the way they were leaders, the things, the way they carried themselves, you know, as physical as they were and all that stuff. Like I was our number one pitcher as a junior and a, and a redshirt junior. Like I knew I was in that same exact boat. Like there was no difference between who they were as a freshman and who I was now as a senior. And I just, I just remarked, I'm like, I know that I am, I am that guy now that I'm, you know, that upper class, that leader that guys look up to, but I just, I don't feel that way. I still feel the same as I did when I was a freshman, when I was that little Justin, little Justin Bieber on my, uh, and when I post this blog I'll, or uh, this podcast, I'll make sure I put a photo of my, um, my college ID because it's super funny. I'm, I honestly look like the Biebs, but anyway, um, you know, I still feel like this little kid that I was when I was 19 and I, and I asked him, like, is that, does that ever go away? Like, I don't, I don't know because if it was going to go away, shouldn't it have gone away by now? And you know, he, as philosophy professor or want to do, he, uh, he kind of answered in a, I don't know if it was a parable, but he said, well, think of, think of the oak tree, you know, the, the oak tree just, it is, it is what it is. It doesn't try to be this big force in the forest. It just, because it was an acorn in a 
finds its little hole in the ground and because it gets watered and nurtured it it grows you know and when it becomes big it gives shade to all the little animals it gives you know acorns and food to all the little creatures that you know and the squirrels and you know the oak tree becomes you know steadfast in the forest a cornerstone in the forest not because it tries to be it doesn't try to be any of those things just by being itself it does those things and provides you know air and shade and food for all the all the creatures that are around it you know for a traveler who needs to get a couple hours of shut eye you know he'll sit and put his hat over his eyes and and lean up against a, a big tree and get some shade and get out of the sun so so just just by being itself the oak tree it it does so much for so many he said, so don't try to be anything. Just be who you are. And in a lot of ways, and you can already tell, like you're doing the things that other people are seeing and maybe they better themselves, you know, because of your example. So don't don't think you have to feel a certain way or that you have to force it or do a certain thing. Just just be who you are. And that was, you know, really kind of the tenement of, of Taoism. Um you know, Taoism is another Eastern sort of philosophy. It's not really religion. It's just about basically the way of nature that says that, you know, you're just a leaf and you float down off the tree and you land or you land into a little creek and you just go with it. You don't try to force the creek. You just kind of float along and you kind of do your best as, as life gives you the, the twists and turns to your story that it's, it's going to give you. Um, so that was kind of the lesson that he imparted with me. And that was a, that was a tough time for me because obviously I was dealing with the height of my career being just sort of crushed, you know, by the news that I had to get surgery and, you know, I'd miss my final year in college. And then I'd be spit out into the real world with, you know, no contract and, you know, this sort of a label as damaged goods with no place to play. Right. So that was a hard place for me to be in. And, you know, over the next couple of years, I just, continue to just do my thing and work hard and, and try to get into pro baseball. And, and I did, um, you know, I got into independent baseball and signed with normal in 2010 and, um, got traded to Lake County in 2011. That team folded for financial reasons, which is a crazy story that I'll, I'll tell another time. And I got, and then I signed with, uh, the Fargo Moorhead Redhawks pitched terribly there, got released before, just before the next season and got picked up by Evansville. And Evansville, uh, their pitching coach, Brooks Carey at the time, was my pitching coach with Normal, and he wanted me to be their number one starter. So I went to Evansville, and uh, I had made some changes, and I pitched you know, the best that year I ever pitched. And right up until my last outing, I had a sub-1 ERA. And when I did finally get pulled out of the game with another elbow injury, I, uh, I had a, something like a 1.06, I think it was, and um, you know, but basically I, I led that team at Evansville through my seven or eight starts, um, prior to my injury. And it was from a lot of different reasons. Number one, your performance on the field, you know, it says a lot, number one. So if you want to be a leader, you have to, you have to play like a leader, but even if you don't, even if you're not, you know, the number one guy or whatever, your pre your presence and your professionalism is really the biggest thing. But the easiest way to insert yourself into a leadership role is just to be the guy that they look to when they need a big play. You know, everyone looked at Michael Jordan when they needed a game-winning shot, right? He was the guy you get the ball to. Um, and whether Michael Jordan was the biggest jerk in the world 
or the greatest guy in the world, and I honestly don't know much about Michael Jordan at all and his personality, but it, that didn't matter, right? When that situation arose, he was the team leader. He was the guy who needed the ball. He was the guy who wanted the ball, and he was the guy who got the ball, right? So that was, you know, that's a good performance-based example. But there's obviously tons of other guys who aren't necessarily the go-to guy who who still lead in a different way. So anyway, in my time in Evansville, um, you know, in, indie ball is tough because when you don't play well for a short stretch, you can get released um, because each team is independently owned. They're just only concerned with winning games and putting fans in the stands. So when they put a, a losing team out there, less, you know, fewer fans come. You know, you don't want to go watch sloppy baseball. So a couple of my starting pitcher buddies, and obviously every baseball clubhouse, they, it gets kind of clicky where, you know, pitchers hang out more with pitchers, really because you're around those guys more often um, than any other position, right? But, you know, and position players kind of stick together a little more. That's not to say they don't co-mingle because we do, but, you know, there's always a little bit of a divide just because position players are hitting BP. They're always around each other in the cage. They just develop deeper relationships, and same thing with pitchers. But when things go wrong, when it gets sort of one-sided, you know, say the hitters are doing fantastic and the pitchers just keep blowing games, you know, there's some grumbling, obviously. And when the opposite is true, when pitchers are pitching really well and hitters can't give them a run to, you know, to win a game, there's grumbling. So with about, I don't know how, how deep in the season it was, but a good buddy of mine had like a four, like a four, six ERA, one of the other starting pitchers. Now at this point, all star. I think all star selection selections had come out, and there was an all star pitcher on the ballot who had made the all star team who had like a four point five, but he was like six and one. And my buddy Matt was had like a four six or four seven, like almost the same ERA, and he was zero and six. And that just goes to show how baseball and other sports, like the win loss records in baseball, are, are often out of the pitcher's control. Right? I mean, you just if you don't get run support, you don't get wins. Um, that was kind of the case with me. I was only I finished that year two and one, and I had a one flat ERA, right? So, and that was in like seven, like I said, I think seven or eight starts. So, I didn't get run support. Matt didn't get run support. Whatever. But what made it worse was that I was close with our pitching coach, and he would tell me things I didn't need to know, such as who was on the chopping block, you know, next week. And so with like a week before that, Matt's, one of Matt's starts, he was like, yeah, you know, he's, uh, he's 0-6. And I know he hasn't been throwing, he hasn't been throwing the ball bad, but management doesn't like that win-loss record. And they said, if he loses another game, he's going to get released. They're going to get rid of him. So as I watched him pitch, you know, it's a good buddy of mine. I was just imploring him to do well because I knew that if he didn't, he was gone. And I was imploring all of our hitters to do well because if they didn't and he pitched well, he was still gone. So he, he needed help from both himself and from our, and from our hitters, right? He needed run support that game. Otherwise his job was on the line. So maybe those hitters job was on the line that night. You know, they could have an 0-4-4 game and kind of take the game off or just pack it in or whatever. Um, and I'm not, not to say that every time you go for four, you're packing it in because that's a hundred percent, not, not the case. But my point is that they could their job was independent of his right but his job was not independent it was very much dependent on their job so as i watched this game we faced a nice pitcher who had a good fastball and a good curveball and he uh, was kind of mowing us down through the first three four five innings where it was i think like a tie ball game or something like that or on the fifth 
and he had maybe like this opposing pitcher, this right-hander, had maybe like eight strikeouts, and it was getting kind of formulaic. It was like curveball first strike, fastball up, you know, another fastball up, and then curveball down and hitter swings and misses, or fastball, you know, curveball, curveball, fastball up in the zone. Either way, you had a pretty good idea that he was either going to drop a curveball in the zone or try to beat you up in the zone, right? And this kept happening. And one of the things that good hitters do, which, again, when I moved up in leagues in 2011, I played in the American Association, which is a much better league than the Frontier League. And then when I played in the Atlantic League, which is tons of AAA and ex-big leaguers, hitters don't let pitchers get them get them out the same way more than once, right? So if I strike a hitter out the first time I face him, if I'm a starter, if I strike him out with, you know, two called strike curveballs in a row or something, just as an example, he's not going to fall for that the next time, right? I'm going to have to find a new way. I'm going to have to engineer a new method of getting him out that second time. And that's what good hitters do. They continue to evolve with the pitcher to keep the pressure on the pitcher, to, to make better pitches each time, to always execute, and to also just not fall into patterns. So as I, as I was watching this game, hoping that my, my buddy would do well and get a win and stay with us, um, it was like no one was paying attention but me. Not the hitters that were going up, not the hitters that were watching. It's like no one was watching this game and realizing how formulaic this pitcher was. Instead, they were just going up there and just striking out, striking out, striking out over and over, and it pissed me off. And finally, it was something like the sixth or seventh inning maybe, one of our hitters goes up there, and he just was clearly ready, and he swung it like a belt-high or a letter-high fastball and crushed it to the wall. Guy made a nice play and caught it at the wall. I didn't mean to say this. I didn't mean to blurt out what I blurted out next, but I was just like, oh, looks like somebody's finally making an adjustment. I think it was something like something to that effect was what I said. Um, or someone's finally trying. Because I was mad. I mean, we were all competitors, and I was getting pretty pissed off after like the 11th strikeout on the same high fastball or curveball. And, you know, this was a two-pitch pitcher who threw like 90 to 91, 92. He wasn't pumping 97, 98 with you know, the hammer from hell. He was a good pitcher, but not great. We were making him great. And of course, when I said that out loud, the two hitters to my left leaning up on the rail, they look over me and go, you know, what the F you, what do you mean by that? Blew it. And I'm like, and at this point, it was a sort of like this fight or flight moment. I'm like, you know what I meant by it? All you guys are going up there and you're striking out the exact same way while my buddy Matt's out there battling for his, for his, uh, for his career. And at this point, it became like a full-on shouting match, me versus two other hitters. And, you know, we were just both yelling at each other in each other's face. And uh, finally, the manager runs over. And because uh, he, he was in the dugout, obviously, because we were hitting. Um, or sorry, I don't know why Andy was in the, in the dugout. But either way, we got broken up. And, you know, the manager's like, not in the dugout, not in the dugout. You know, you can't be at each other's throats. Like, we've got to be a team, all that stuff, which is hundred percent valid and so we go our separate ways there's a lot of animosity and just like a kind of awkwardness in the dugout the game continues to go as it had already been going we got I think shut out and he went 0-7 he didn't end up getting released after that game he ended up staying on with us he pitched well and I think I got a couple wins after that but the next day our manager kind of pulled me aside he's like look like you're right. Like everything you said was correct. Like there's nothing wrong with what you said, but that obviously that wasn't the time and place to say it. And we can't, you know, be divided as a team and fighting amongst each other. That's not good for morale. It's not good for anybody. 
he said, but I just want you to know, like, you know, you weren't wrong. You know, guys weren't making adjustments. And, you know, we're going to have a talk with hitters about that, too. Um, so whether I got validated by him or not, and I have a lot of respect for him, Andy, he's still the manager at Evansville. They won a, won a championship last year. Um, regardless of him validating me, that was probably the first incident of me actually being a leader, of me being someone who wasn't going to let that fly anymore. Because whether I was right or wrong about going about it, and looking back, like, clearly that was not the right way to go about it. I don't know what the right way it would have been, because I wasn't a hitter, and it's not like a pitcher is going to gather the hitters around, and be like, hey guys, this is what's going on. Let's you know, let's change our game plan. That's just not how it works. You know, someone from the hitters had needed to see what I was seeing, and they needed to pull everyone in there and be like, hey, look, guys, you know, we struck out nine times in five innings. Um, you know, he's he's kind of getting into a pattern. We got to we got to make an adjustment. We got to get some hits here. That's some that needed to come from the hitters, but it wasn't coming, um, and so. I stepped in again, probably didn't handle it the right way, but nonetheless, that was new for me. I didn't try to do that. It wasn't my intention to like get in people's face, but it was my intention that the game improve, that my buddy get some help and that someone wake up on our, on our, on our dugout. Like someone needed to wake up and wake up now because he's out there battling and looks like no one else even cares. No one else is even paying attention. So for me, that was a, a big growing up point. It was a, maybe not just a growing up point, but it was a point where something, I was aware that I had grown up at some point along the way, you know, where I was making a stand, that same stand that I, I didn't make when I was back in college, you know, watching our closer pull shots of whiskey off of his, uh, you know, his flask while still in his uniform. So, you know, and as I continue to develop and grow, you know, then <laughs> develop, that's a little weird word. Um, for those of you out there, this, this podcasting thing is not easy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and I've written a book and I've written hundreds of blog posts over 300 now, you know, dozens of, of articles as a, a freelance fitness writer. And writing is just this different animal where you can string together a nice sentence. And if it's not exactly right, you go back and you edit it. But here is your, you know, giving a monologue or having a conversation with someone, um, I'm not sure if you listen to our other podcast, Twins, he's with my partner, uh, Lucas Cook. Um, and obviously I had uh, Kevin Vance on the show last week. It's just it's just a different animal when you got to spit it all out in one shot. It's pretty fun. It's challenging. But anyway, um, as I continue to grow into the game, you know, and grow up as a man, you know, I, obviously I had Tommy John surgery in the second half of 2012, missed all of 2013. And then I came back into the Atlantic League in 2014, 15, and 16. And that's a league where I was old enough. Like, I was the average age. The average age in that league is about 29. And I was 28, 29, and then 30 in my last season. And But I was behind in experience level. So most guys who are 28 in that league have played eight or nine seasons, if not 11 seasons, or even like 13. I had teammates who had signed as 16-year-olds out of the Dominican Republic or Venezuela, Um so it was crazy that, you know, I, at that point I'd had like four, four seasons or three or four seasons under my belt and I'm the same age as guys who've had a dozen seasons, right? So the pecking order in sports isn't always necessarily age. Sometimes it's experience level. Um, and obviously, you know, you yield to guys who have big league time when they're saying, you know, what needs to happen or, or if they're giving you a, kind of a directive, but, um, 
and obviously like things like seats on the bus and all that stuff the pecking order is really more of like your service time rather than your physical age but age also matters i mean if we're just being honest like a younger kid is still going to have a, a level of immaturity compared to someone older i mean wisdom is not to be you know underrated but so anyway in 2015 you know i was having the best season of my career and us as a team we weren't playing well and it was kind of a lack of it seemed at times like a lack of motivation obviously like we were in either last or second to last most of the year but just something was up where it was just a lax environment you know guys would show up late for batting practice they'd show up out of uniform um just lots of things that don't fly at higher levels of baseball like they don't fly at all we're flying and it made it seem in a lot of ways just like a like a beer league like a rec league and um it was unsettling to me and a lot of other guys who were used to things being done a certain way and who even though it was maybe like a you know a lot lower level of play for guys who'd spent a couple years in the majors some of those guys were happy for the the laxity I guess but other guys who'd played at you know high levels they were not happy with the laxity they they want it to still be professional to still be clean and we look exactly the same as you know the Yankees AAA team would but so things got sloppy you know guys weren't doing what they needed to do guys are showing up play they're out of uniform it just we just in general didn't look like a professional team and after you know in the second half of the year after a string of losses our manager Chris Widger who's a great guy like one of my favorite people that I met in baseball he uh he wasn't the hard nose like get in your face kind of guy that's just not who he is he's a really likable really easygoing dude and when we would play poorly and give these kind of lackluster low effort performances he wouldn't come in and just scream at us like some other managers might this wasn't this wasn't, wasn't him you know, he kind of give us these talks like my dad would like these like kind of admonishing us these you know I'm disappointed in you guys you know I, I treat you like men and I'm I don't understand where why if you love baseball and you've been playing this long like why you can't give a legitimate effort like why you show up out of uniform and it was valid like you don't you shouldn't have to tell guys who are 30 years old who played 10 seasons that they need to have the right batting practice shirt on you know for no other reason than it just makes us look like a team right and so those things is like you know his talks just unfortunately didn't work like they worked for me and a lot of other guys because that's what we wanted right we wanted to look professional we we wanted to respect the game all that stuff but the guys that didn't that wasn't appealing to them so after a couple of those talks he finally it finally came to a head and he's like look tomorrow you're going to meet me in my office at some point every one of you and you're going to sit down and we're going to you're going to tell me if you actually want to be here or not because I don't believe that a lot of you do and so the next day when I came in and I had that my meeting with him, I was conflicted because I said, you know, I want to be here. Like, this is my team. Um, you know, I, I came up, Camden gave me a chance in 2014, and I'm grateful that I got that chance, and I'm grateful that I got taken back. You know, in my first season with them, I had a four-flat ERA, which is pretty borderline. Like, maybe you get asked back, maybe you don't. And I was thankful that I got another chance with them. And I had a much better year my second year. Um, I was like, look, I, I want to be here. Like, this is my team. Like, I shouldn't have to go, but I can't tolerate the way things are going. Like, I don't want to be on this team if it's going to be, you know, guys aren't doing their 
pregame work, if they're showing up late, if they're like that, all that little stuff adds up and it, it just kills the vibe for me. It makes like this. And I told him like this, I don't know if I'll ever get out of independent baseball. I'm 29 now. I've had Tommy John twice. I'm six foot, you know, I'm right-handed. I don't throw 99. Like this might be my major leagues. And if this is my major leagues, this is the highest I'm ever going to go. I want it to at least feel like that. You know, I want it to feel the way I want it to feel like the way it means to me. Like this, this, that was, it was the highest level I ever got to. I felt privileged to play in that league every day with guys that had been on TV and against guys that have been on TV. Um, and I told him, like, I, I don't, I want to be here, but not if it's going to continue to be like this. And I said, I feel powerless to control it because I'm not a, like, there's like eight or nine guys on this team who played in the, in the majors. I'm not one of them. I'm not the guy who should be speaking up to tell some of those guys, you know, to, to get it in gear. Like, that's not my place. I feel like I'm not leadership on this team. And we had this long talk about it. And he said, no, like, that's not true. Like, yeah, you haven't played in AAA or, or the majors, but that doesn't mean you don't have a leadership place on this team, Dan. Like, if you want, you know, to to voice your opinion, guys are going to listen to you because you've you've put in the work you go out there and you handle your business every day. You act like a professional in every sense. You know, you're not out late partying. You're not late. You're always on time. You're always doing your work. You know, you conduct yourself a certain way. Um, he was like, you're as professional as everyone else in this clubhouse, whether you play in the big leagues or not. And, you know, I told some of my buddies when, you know, I just at different points in my career, the, one of the only things I wanted aside from like the, the things I really wanted, which are to pitch in the majors. Um, I just wanted to be respected by players who were respected. I want to be respected by guys who were good, who knew like the way the game should be played, who, who knew talented players from untalented players, who knew professional players from unprofessional players. I wanted to be held as a professional by guys who were also professionals. That was the big thing for me. You know, I just wanted to be respected and, so that meant a lot to me. And that was 10 years in the making, you know, from that, that little kid as a freshman in college, you know, all those years of kind of learning lessons and being coachable and kind of waiting my turn, you know, and just taking it all in and finally getting into some conflict with guys too, you know, like in, with, in, in Evansville, that shouting match in the dugout, you know, that wasn't the first time that it happened. A couple more of those had happened each, you know, actually kind of like one a year. Um, but you know, it all kind of led up to that where, and my point being of this, this whole kind of broadcast is you are what you make yourself. And in me just trying to do things the right way, I was kind of becoming that oak tree over time, right? Like I didn't, I was never a major leaguer. Um, I was never, I never had the resume of most of these guys, but I guess in the end I had similar leadership abilities just because I conducted myself with a certain professionalism. Um, and I did things the right way. Right. And like I said, that was 10 years in the making. It took a long time to get to that point. Um, but for all the young kids that we, that I get to work with now, you know, my goal is to impart those things to them earlier, you know, go about your business, 
you know, like a professional. It doesn't matter if you're 12 years old. You know, develop your routine. You know, don't backtalk the umpires. Don't backtalk your coaches. Be responsible to your teammates. You know, be respectful to everybody. You know, um, run balls out. You know, don't put your head down when you're up on the mound. Don't show another guy up when you're on the field. All those things add up. You know, and those are things that a lot of them were hard lessons learned. You know, I showed up on my teammates by accident because I was emotional. He was emotional. I was in a slump. Um, he made a bad play in center field behind me. And I think I just threw him a, a slightly defiant eye. And that's how I felt inside. I was irritated. I needed help and he didn't help me. Um, which there were a lot of reasons that my perspective on that situation was wrong. But we got, we were nose to nose in the clubhouse after that game. Cause he saw that little flash of a, you know, of an eye to him that showed him up and with him being had you need a lot of personal things going on it almost became a, a fist fight in the dugout or in the clubhouse afterwards all those things that add up you know you just learn like even then at the very end of my career there are moments where I still would sometimes slip up fall short you know and not con- conduct myself the way I wanted to but um you know, it's just, it's just such a long journey as you grow up in your sport and you grow up in your career. Um, you know, it, it's almost shocking how little, how little you know, or how little, how little you knew when you look back on it, right? When I look at back at my 22 year old self, my 24 year old self, my 26 year old self, I'm like, I was the most clueless human of all time. <laughs> like every, every two year junction of my life. Um, I thought I was pretty smart at 22, but I knew literally nothing. And I think that's kind of how everyone feels, you know, when they get old and decrepit. And I have like 89 gray hairs, probably because of, uh, you know, most of these, these moments, my surgeries and all that stuff. But, um, you know, you just look back and you have this perspective from all the years and the long journey and all the conflicts that you have along the way and the times that you're forced to kind of fight or flight and they all just add up and at the end of the day you kind of see am i a am i an oak tree 10 years later or am i still a little sapling and there's a lot of guys who are still just little saplings who don't give anything back um not in a literal sense or the figurative sense you know they just still take 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 and they suck joy out out of whatever they're doing from other people because i don't know they just uh either they're inwardly focused or they're inwardly focused on in a sort of a negative way. It's, it's hard to describe, but it's a, it's an interesting mix of, of what spits a person out better at the end of the day. Right. So I think that's, uh, that's my, my talk for episode four today, but stick with us. Episode five. Oh man. Who knows? More more Justin Bieber tales and more baseball. Maybe another interview. We'll see. But thank you. This is Dear Baseball Gods.